0: Berry Chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. Today, we are honored to be speaking to Dr. Kathleen Luby. Dr. Kathleen Luby is a professor of English at St. John's University. She specializes in literature and culture of 18th century Britain, sexuality and gender studies, feminist uh, theory, history of pornography, literature of British slave trade, and literary criticism and theory. Today, she is here to talk with us about a great book she published uh, with Stanford University Press in 2022 called... What Pornography Knows, Sex and Social protest Since the 18th Century. Kathleen, welcome to New Books Network.
0: Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here.
1: It's a fascinating topic uh, uh, you've chosen. Before we start talking about the book, can you tell us a little about yourself, introduce yourself and how you became interested in your field of expertise, and then more importantly, why you decided to write a book about sex and social protest? (laughs)
0: <laughs> absolutely um yeah well you said a lot about my background I'm a specialist in 18th century literature mainly um, gender and sexuality studies also mainly those are sort of my two primary fields um I became and I'm yeah and I teach and write and research on these topics here in Queens New York where st John's University is um, I became interested in the 18th century as a historical period in graduate school um, because it I think defies so much of what we think literary culture is like. It's a mess. It doesn't know what it's doing. It argues with itself constantly. It's rude. It's body. It's combative. Um, yeah, there's lots of infighting and criticizing and sort of the, the chaos of that was very appealing to me. Um, as a researcher, because it didn't seem to me that you could take anything for granted about the period, you just had to go in and read the text and see what they told you. Um, so that's what drew me to the period, and then what drew me to think about sexuality and gender so much in the period is that, um, again, early in my in my graduate coursework. Um, reading what was I was told was moral fiction about women being virtuous, per, you know, preparing for marriage, being courted. Um, so much of that, that fiction seemed to me to be obsessed with sex and sort of constantly describing it and constantly showing women on the precipice, you know, of being um, seduced or raped or somehow implicated in sexual action that would like harm them forever and change their reputation and um, change their status on a marriage market. It seemed to me that the period was um, kind of centralizing a conversation about sex all the time. But when I read literary criticism, I didn't see that being said, <laughs> you know, I sort of heard the opposite things being said, you know, that is that um, it, the 18th century was obsessed with like chastity and, rep- and sort of repression and having a highly sexually organized culture. Um, yeah, so I decided to start writing books and and reading texts and writing articles and, you know, a dissertation and then all the things that followed. Um, that kind of both argue and just try to show and explore the centrality of like sexual conversations and all kinds of literature. So um, moral fiction, philosophy, poetry, and then most recently in this book, pornography itself. Um, So yeah, how I came for this to be my second book project um, is that as any academic knows, um, your dissertation and your first book have to do some sort of ground clearing, right? of, Of the period you study, you have to show that you are fluent in the major authors of the field and the genres, um, and kind of the mainstream conversations about the field. Um, and I enjoyed writing that book. It was about sort of how erotic, um, sort of like style and topics and um, the sort of the way that 18th century literature theorizes feeling in the 18th century has very much to do with how sexual feeling is also being theorized in the 18th century. So it um, looked at figures like Samuel Richardson and Joseph Addison and Adam Smith and Edmund Burke and people like that. This book grew out of um, some texts that I had encountered researching that first book but didn't really have the time to explore fully. Um, So yeah, I found a few anonymously published pornographic novels that um, I mentioned in the in the first book, but then this book that we're going to talk about today um, grew out of really following where those books took me into a thickly pornographic culture of the eighteenth century. So that's how I came to it.
1: Uh, fascinating story, uh, and I'm also keen to know more about the methodological approach you took to pornography in this book. Can you talk about that to uh, to our listeners?
0: Yes, I can, and it's such an important question because, first and foremost, pornography was not a category in the 18th century. Um, it's an ancient term um, that wh- whose origins are are Greek that has to do with like you know writing or depictions of sex workers, prostitutes. Um, but in the 19th century, it became a category a way of organizing libraries and museums by collecting certain material that featured sex or described sex um, and, and sort of sequestering it away, right? And separating it from more mainstream collections. Um, so in the 1850s, this in England anyway, this really sort of becomes a category. Um, and the function of the category was to make those kinds of materials only available to educated aristocratic men, who could access them easily and to keep them out of the hands of everybody else. Um, so in the 18th century, none of that is happening. There aren't publishers or authors saying to themselves, I'm going to write some pornography. <laughs> They're saying to themselves, I'm going to write a funny poem about premature ejaculation, or I'm going to write a novel about um, a 15 year old boy who like has sex with his cousin, you know, like <laughs> it's kind of like, it's much less committed So let me just start that over again. If we think about pornography, and I don't think this is right, but we tend to think about about pornography only describing sex, like that's what it does. In the 18th century, since no one knew what pornography was going to be, text didn't only describe sex, right? Sex would maybe graphically and explicitly and spectacularly come up in a novel. It might be um, described in ways we'd consider it pornographic. And then you might enter a phase of the text for 100 pages where sex isn't mentioned, then you might come up up it again. So like all these other things are happening in these novels that I study in this book that are adjacent to sex but are not sex acts themselves. And so um, to your question about methodology, I define pornography as all of that stuff right? So I'm not saying, oh, pornography is just the bits where the things are going into the other things on these bodies, you know, on these people's bodies, or like, it's where a reader might be titillated when they read the book. I'm not interested in that kind of definition of pornography. This is like, warts and all kitchen sink, you know, everything, um, casting a wide net, whatever metaphor you want to use. It's about trying to see the full picture of like, what sex does in a book, how it connects to other kinds of ideas and topics and themes, and ultimately what its social significance is. So when it happens, um, and this has to do you know, with the subtitle of my book, when sex happens, what is the conversation that unspools about it? Um, does it make people happy? Does it make them sad? Do they forget about it immediately? Um, Does it happen between men? Does it happen between women? Does it happen between 10 people at once? Like, what do these, you know, what do these things kind of tell us? So it's about, it's a very chaotic methodology. um, But I think it is true to the period and it's agnosticism about pornography because it simply was not a reference point yet. Um, And I'll just add that what this also means is that these books were being, they weren't being sold in like books that only sold porn, you know, which is something that in in the 19th century would be happening. There were booksellers who specialized in kind of, um, you know, obscenity. Um, They tried not to be known for that, but they did. Um, In the 18th century, you would have these texts beside, you know, adventure writing, travel writing, political treatises, religious tracts, potentially, right? So there was this this, uh, imbrication and kind of weaving in of sexual writing into the broader literary marketplace. Um, And I just think that history is so important to a history of pornography because it shows us that, um, you know, I I think that we have these kind of, Underinformed ideas about history that, like, sex was always taboo. It was always a separate topic. It was always hidden. And like the 18th century disproves that completely. Um, and it's you know it makes it a really exciting thing to research.
1: I think well, what you said is a perfect segue into my next question. I was uh, uh, fascinated to know that there was this category in the 18th century, and I because you know the idea we have is that 18th and 19th century it's a very prudish. Uh, society or prudish time. But how did they, the culture openly discuss genitals in fiction? Uh, was there any criticism or backlash against this? Great question.
0: I'll start with the second part first. There was definitely backlash. Um, first of all, most pornography was written anonymously, and authors would go to great lengths to keep their names off the fiction. But then so was much other material written anonymously. That's not unusual in the 18th century. A lot of um, authors didn't put their names to things until they were very successful, and then they would. Um, however, an author like John Cleland, who wrote the very famous novel Fanny Hill, um, which is kind of the big, quote-unquote, hardcore um, pornographic novel published in 1749 that remained famous ever since, um, you know, he was arrested and um, detained. He ended up not going to trial, but he was facing obscene, um, like, obscenity charges or libel charges, Um And his publisher managed to to get him off the hook. But Cleland's um, reputation never recovered from that. Like he had aspirations to be a highly productive literary critic and author, and the reputation he gained for himself by writing that novel never left him, and he was very bitter about it. Um, So yeah, there were absolutely ramifications for that. And women who wrote, like Eliza Haywood, who wrote what I think we would now classify as romance, novels or romance fiction um you know she was kind of described as as uh, you know sexually incontinent or promiscuous or somehow you know um debased because she was writing about matters of sex and seduction so there were like social ramifications um and legal ones as well um but yeah why was 18th century or how was 18th century fiction centering genitals um I mean, the first thing I'd say is that I don't think only pornography is and part of my book shows that like there are books or um, texts about, for example, Bernard Mandeville, who is the philosopher who wrote um, kind of proto utilitarian theory in the 18th century, he wrote a um, kind of tract called A Modest Defense of the public stews, and it was a proposal for um, sort of nationalized prostitution and healthcare and, you know, brothels being built in the, in the middle of London and, you know, proposed a sort of method of um, regulating sex work that would keep sex workers safe, would keep men safe, it would regulate STI circulation. Like, it was a satire, but it was also, like, not crazy. So um, anyhow, in that text, which is very much about sex, there are these ways that he he sort of digresses or has these sections where he describes how women's bodies are made for sex and how um, the you know sort of the the anatomy genital anatomy is designed to give women pleasure and to draw men into that pleasure and that like the the sort of he kind of provides instructions on how both partners can enjoy um, sex and that's his way of saying like everybody, which isn't necessarily true, but everybody wants to do it. So like, why don't we regulate it in this way? So even in a mainstream philosophical text, there's this quasi-anatomical, quasi-erotic way of making genitals like the center of that argument. So there's an example of where like a non-pornographic text is sort of being pornographic. Um, And then in moral fiction, like a a tragic novel like Samuel Richardson's Clarissa, there's a rape at the center of that novel. Um, It's it's a deeply, I have a tattoo of that novel on my arm. Um, I'm obsessed with that novel um, and I write about it, not in the book, but elsewhere. she, uh, you know, the the, the character, the, the heroine of that novel who is trying so hard to remain a virgin because she simply doesn't want to get married and she doesn't want to have sex. She's like very staunch about it. Um, that act is at the center of that novel. It causes her death ultimately. Um, so yeah, certain, genital status is kind of like the 18th century reader is highly conscious of people's bodies and what has happened to them. Um, specifically, Um, And, you know, I have to just apologize once for how graphically I speak about this, but specifically about penetrative sex um, involving, you know, a man's penis and a woman's vagina. Like that was the thing that made a woman not chaste anymore if she wasn't married. Um, And there's a high level of consciousness about that across literature in the period. Um, Pornography, like both shares that belief that genitals are at the center of life (laughs) and social meaning um, but it also kind of makes fun of it, right? It opens it up and and um, exploits how much it can be written about, um, you know, and sort of writes comically sometimes about how sex happens, um, writes about women sort of discovering what their bodies can do in ways that can be both, you know, I guess arousing if you're into that kind of thing. I don't I'm not one to say like that's arousing over there and that other thing isn't. But um, it, it, it's, it's just so interesting because pornography is really willing to take any kind of attitude towards sex. Like it's not promoting any one account of it, um, but it's almost as though genitals are at the center of it. And it's like across all of the works that I study in this book, there's just experiments with like, well, what, how about when you treat it seriously? How about when you treat it tragically? How about when you admit that that's rape? How about when you show women penetrating one another what is that like you know and so there's just like such a variety of attitudes and outcomes to sex and pornography and to me that just tells us so much about what people's actual attitudes were um and how richly the genre was giving us like multiple answers to the questions about what sex meant and um why it was valued so much Um, yeah i could talk about that forever but i'll stop there for now
1: (laughs) It's interesting. You mentioned uh, Fanny Hill. I've had that novel in my library for over fifteen years, and unfortunately, I never bothered to read it until I came across the name of the novel in your book. And I'll put—I haven't read it, yet, but I'll put it aside. It's not a big big novel anyway. I'll put it aside, but no, my, my attitude um, towards the content is going to be completely different having read your book. And it's great that, you know, uh, we get this different perspective on these books. Uh, another thing I'm really interested in is the depiction of hetero uh, heteronormativity in these uh, fictions. Were they Was heteronormativity challenged or disputed in, in, in 18th century fiction?
0: It really was, I think, both in pornographic fiction and in mainstream fiction. Um, there are lots of literary critics and historians who will disagree with me here and will say that it was completely promoting heteronormativity. You know, so this is a matter of interpretation. But to me, both in pornography and in sort of straight fiction, um the, I'm trying to, I, I want to overstate this completely to be clear, the um, unrelenting way in which men tried to dispose of women's bodies as as suited them, it's just in every single novel that we have, like except maybe Robinson Crusoe, cause he's like on an island, you know, beating goats or whatever he does there. <laughs> but like any novel that takes place like in a town, in a city, you know, in a pasture where like you encounter other people, um, there is always this politics of men sort of encroaching on women's space, but also on their bodies, their livelihoods, their futures, um, brothers arranging marriages for young women, or um, not arranging them uh, carefully enough, right? And and maybe arranging a marriage for a female relative to a drunkard, a gambler, um, an abuser, a rapist, you know what I mean? Like there's just fiction is constantly showing how women were at the mercy of a patriarchal culture that was going to do with them what they wanted, whether it was place the woman into um, a lucrative marriage or rape her and force her into sex work. Um, and I know that sounds stark, but like, really a lot of the fiction is about that. Um, So to my mind, that isn't reinforcing a patriarchal culture. It's constantly calling it into question. It's showing how harmful it was. It shows women resisting it over and over again. And even though most women in these fictions don't succeed in resisting it, they end up married or raped or disgraced or dead or in a convent or like whatever, even though that's the ultimate outcome, to me, the important part is that the novels give voice to women objecting at length, you know, to sex or to marriage or to, um, any numbers to sex work or asking for sex work and avidly entering it. You know, there are ways that, um, the woman's voice is really at the center of these novels, even though typically they don't, um, end up with a ton of agency, you know, as kind of the outcome of, of the narrative. Um, so where pornography is interesting on that is that it isn't interested in giving us like realistic models of what women should be like, right? It's showing us women who have sex and then like go on to have more sex and then go on to have more sex. Um, so it just, dis- as all pornography does, I think even today, it dispenses with, you um, Assumptions about what women should be like or what happens when the sex act is over and they enter out into the world pornography is willing to experiment with a worldview where women can continue to lead virtuous lives after they have sex right or they can hide it or. or they can succeed in evading it for a really long time um, until they marry somebody wealthy. Um, so I to me all of that disputes heteronormativity in the sense that it disputes what you know the great feminist Adrienne Rich had called compulsory heterosexuality. Um, It shows women rejecting institutions like marriage and patriarchy and paternalism that like wanted to subdue them into very predictable kinds of people. Um, And since pornography kind of irreverently shows us women doing other kinds of things, um, I think it's kind of, you know, redefining or multiplying what a feminine gender or genders can look like um it is also and i think we'll we'll probably talk about this in some of the later questions um it also experiments with queer eroticism in the 18th century specifically between women as an alternative to sex with men um so when you read fanny hill within the first few pages you'll see that her first um, experience with penetration is with a woman um not with a man um and it's like not it's you know not terrible it's not traumatizing it's kind of gentle Um, and then there are other, um, novels that, you know, show young women, um, finding a dildo together, like trying to figure out how to use it. And it's both funny and real, um, and shows, um, you know, sort of sexual and penetrative alternatives to the kinds of activities that were being sought by men so much. So it kind of shows this alternate sexual economy, um, that women might pursue in private. Um, and to me, again, that's not the kind of disputing of heteron- heteronormativity that we what might value today in the 21st century. But for the 18th century and the literary imagination, I think it's like carving out a space where all of those impositions of the heterosexual world um, were questioned.
1: And um, uh, just to pick up on a point you mentioned earlier you, earlier, you mentioned that these novels are not merely, you know, depicting sex for pleasure, but there's also a critical anger, a- angle angle in, in, in pornography in the eighteenth century century novels. Can you talk about that that please?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the the kind of literary critic answer to that question is that um, it is about narrative. Like when you're reading, you know, most of this pornography is not visual. It was too expensive to have illustrations printed in a novel. I mean you might have a few of those but it's very rare. So this is either printed as poetry or as prose or I guess on, on occasion these would be like body things that would be recited or read out loud. But when you have, I'm going to stick to um, fiction and narrative because it makes the point most clearly. Um, When you're reading a novel, there has to be language in between big events that like moves you from one sex sex act to another, right? Like something has to come in between. People have to put on their clothes, walk out the door, go to sleep, and then the next day has to happen, right? Like there's conversation, there's language, there's commentary above all on what um, either precedes or succeeds the sex act. So um in one example that's just coming to mind when a 15-year-old boy um in this novel, The History of the Human Heart, that I kind of build my book around, that it's another 1749 uh pornographic novel, um, there's a scene early in that novel where the, the hero Camillo um fools around with his cousin. I don't think they Do they have penetrative sex? There's so much of it. I can't, I can't, you know, keep it track, but they come close. If they don't have sex, they come close. And the next day he's like fatigued with a fever, like, because he exerted himself so much. He's sick in bed and, um, his cousin also isn't feeling well and his parents figure out what they've done. And they're both punished for it. And like the mother talks at length about what will become of Mariah, the cousin whose virtue, you know, possibly has been compromised. And like what will be her possible futures now that this thing has happened to her? And what does it mean about her aunt and uncle who were supposed to be protecting her and providing her a safe home? Um, And what are the consequences for Camillo? And then like they end up sending him kind of early off to a grand tour of Europe to get him away, (laughs) to get him like out of their hair. So, anyhow, it's something like that where kind of like the mundane everyday consequences of sex get like get the family all up into a um tizzy and they have to have they you know proclaim sort of moral meanings about the sex act that happened. so that's like one example um but a more interesting example in that same novel is um and this is unusual but i think really still exemplary even though it's unusual. This novel, The History of the Human Heart, incorporates footnotes into the novel um, that elaborate on sex acts and other things that happen in it. So you'll be like reading the main text and there's one example that's um, really important for me where strippers are doing an erotic dance on a stage at a banyo and a bunch of men are watching them. And as the kind of like um, scene reaches the climax, a footnote starts to grow across the pages of this description. So the description of the performance gets reduced down to like two lines per page for four pages. And there's this gigantic footnote supposedly written by a philosopher. And he's like, could we ever call these women modest? What even is modesty? right?" And he's like, moral philosophy defines modesty as um, an interior trait. And then this philosopher ends up saying, but clearly, all, I mean, this is summarizing a very bloated passage. He ultimately says in this reflection, um, if we watch young girls and young women, if we observe them in kind of like an unfettered state, they all want to be free. They all want to run around. They all want to do what their brothers do. They all aren't ashamed of their bodies. So clearly, he concludes, we must have invented modesty as a way of keeping women restrained and restricted in their sphere of um. You know, kind of sociability. Um, so like this, this feminist analysis of modesty as a fake trait, or at least a trait that is like imposed on women rather than natural to their being, um all gets theorized in this in this footnote that's printed on the page that's like driving the sex act off the page I mean it's to me this is like the that's the example that got this whole project going I was like what is going on so to just you know to very long-windedly answer your question um the 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 writing is so willing to move away from sex, you know, that, it, it, and it can because it's it's printed prose on a page. It's a writer digressing. It's a writer experimenting with how far they can move the reader's attention away from the women's bodies that they're supposed to be imagining. Um, and how can you connect those topics to one another? Um, so, yeah, that's kind of how I see um it's, you know, one example of how I see prose fiction being especially accommodating of all of this diverse material in one pornographic text. Um, does that answer your question?
1: Yes, yes, it does. It does. Uh, and, and another topic that I'm, I was really interested in was when you talk about the development of the genre of uh pornography it's not only fiction but it's in other forms such as poetry sometimes even in philosophy um um, i'm really interested to know more about that that development of the the genre i mean the category of pornography let's say into other genres
0: yeah you know it's it's interesting i don't i think of it almost inversely like because pornography didn't develop at all in the 18th century, it gets to be in all these other places, you know, and like do different things in all of them. So this is kind of a blanket statement, but where where I think novels are kind of both irreverent and a little bit serious with the ideas that they'll circulate around sex like the feminist ideas about modesty i just talked about poetry i think by and large and a poetry person might argue with me i think is much more like body and kind of funny and kind of like flip (laughs) with sex you know there's a lot of just um anonymous not very good body poetry out there about um you know, young like um, shepherdesses, getting you know, getting it off behind the tree with like the local milk boy or whatever. You know, these kinds of things. So a lot of this kind of inconsequential pastoral. Um, they experiment, of course, with rhyme. They're mostly written in tetrameter, which is like a kind of fun little rollicking um, song structure. Um, there are a few a few exceptions to this, but mostly I think um, that. Poetry adopts a kind of comic attitude towards sex. It treats it pretty inconsequentially. It treats it like, um, yeah, more of a a kind of experiment. Um, It's just more conventional. I'll put it that way. Um, So it is developing, but I don't think with kind of the diversity and the gusto that it is in novels. Um, And then philosophy, sort of like what I said about Bernard Mandeville earlier, philosophy, if we define philosophy inclusively, which I do, I'm not talking about like Kant (laughs) or, you know, even um, necessarily someone like, you know, Burke or Hume, I'm not talking about the big guns. But if we think about philosophy, um, including scientific writing, which was called natural philosophy in the 18th century, or conduct manuals, um, marriage manuals, Anatomy treatises. There was all. There was this whole body of writing that was meant for a fairly wide audience, a non-specialist, non-academic audience, that was trying to educate them about things like um, conception, or marriage, or the relationship between um the man and the woman, you know, the married man and woman, um, when they have sex, or, you know, how to sort of Daniel Defoe wrote um a <laughs> he wrote a treatise called conjugal lewdness, which is about how to avoid lewdness in the conjugal married state, right? Like how to have sex the right ways in the way that like the Bible says we should, um, which means like temperance and gentleness and um yeah, things you may or may not actually, you know, agree with, but like he had a whole theory of how sex should happen um, in that text. So yeah, philosophy in the sense that it was trying to popularize knowledge, um, and encourage people to autonomously, like think about how their bodies should interact sexually with others. Um, to me, that's philosophical writing. Um, and it's, it's quite, um, you know, it's, it's to, to my reading when I look at the text, um, it's quite unembarrassed and candid about that topic. Um, but again, I'll just emphasize that I think what's fascinating about applying the category of pornography backwards to the 18th century it lights up that sex is being written about in all these different places um and not always in a kind of um pyrotechnically pornographic way but I still think it's pornographic when Daniel Defoe is like (laughs) so this position this way and not too forcefully like will lead to the happiest mood the next day you know like he's writing really pretty explicitly about these things um and i think when we think about that being pornography we can kind of see it sharing in common concerns that are across other forms of writing as well uh
1: a- another thing that was interesting to me was was in general the question of woman uh, i think uh off the year before we started recording i told you that i did my phd on e on, on gothic literature and in gothic literature the question of woman is is central it's 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 an uh, uh, indispensable part of Gothic uh, literature. And also, in general, I guess, 18th century novels as well. Uh, some of them you mentioned, some of these novels at the beginning. So I'm interested to know how pornography highlighted this the question of women and also their bodies, especially with relation to cultural practices such as marriage or courtship.
0: Great, great question. Um, let me start by saying I think that women are more central to and more sympathetically treated in 18th century pornographic writing than probably in any other period. Um, Women are major characters. They talk a lot. They grieve. They desire. They articulate what they want. They say no. They get outraged. They say yes. They say yes again. (laughs) They say yes to this and no to that. They are really granted and extremely central. Like they're definitely the objects of desire. And a lot of these not all of them. A lot of these texts are written from a kind of like masculine point of view, where your the optics of the novel are focused at the woman's body. Like for sure, Fanny Hill more or less is that way, for example. Um, but at the same time, I mean, Fanny Hill is a great example. Fanny Hill is narrated in the first person by Fanny. She writes to her uh, to an intimate friend. I'm going to tell you about the years of my life I spent as a sex worker. Um, so we get this entire account of like a very um uh eventful sexual escapade in the voice of a woman who is like unapologetic um for the life she's led. Um and also we hear about women, women's bodies and her body in a way that certainly reinforces like a straight male gaze, you know, which everyone thinks is propped up by pornography. Um, so both of those things are happening at the same time. But I think women are centered because women, I mean, this was true in the Victorian period too, but I think the 18th century was more conflicted about it. Like people were obsessed with, with whether or not women were virgins um it it was like a litmus test like are you can you be are you marriageable are you pregnant um if you're married you know yeah how many you know are you sort of doing the is your body doing the job of reproduction in the way it should be um women you know they were they were policed we've all read jane austen you know you couldn't be alone in a room with a guy who wasn't a family member if you weren't married um and it's you know if fiction is telling us anything true it seems that those kinds of protections were warranted if the goal was to keep women chaste (laughs) because it seems you know if women are shown to in this way of being um you know uh that their chastity is prized above all over all, all other things we're also shown that women or men sorry are you know rapaciously pursuing them and either trying to kind of like hasten them into an unwise marriage or, um, you know, fake a marriage and have sex with them or coerce them into sex or whatever. So um, yeah, I think uh, 18th century culture was actually highly aware that this was, it was like an unsafe culture for women. um, And that books are about that. Um, And again, pornography shows us instances where women are treated poorly that way. Like they're surprised when they're sleeping and held down in bed and, you know, I, I would say now raped. The text doesn't say they're raped. The text is like, and then she swooned. And when she woke up, she realized she'd been ruined. And like the guy's like, great, you know, like everything's fine. So the text is a little bit, I I use the word agnostic a lot. Like I think the pornographic texts are just like, well, that's what happened. And the description gave you an opportunity to like be aroused by that if you want to be. But it doesn't delete out the fact that the woman then, like, that she objects, that she was unconscious. I'm thinking of an exact example in history of the human heart, um, and that after it's over, she grieves, and she actually comes back pages later, um, and gives. She, of course, ends up dying because she's not a virgin anymore. But she gives a speech to the hero of. She's just like you've ru- you've ruined my life, you know, and um, and I'm not going to prosecute you because I'm going to die anyway, and it doesn't really matter, you know. I mean, it's 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 both over the top and like deeply serious. I think. So yeah, women and, and by the Victorian period, you know, we'll talk about that later, but like that's not happening anymore or it's not happening as much Um, that gets quieted down pretty quickly when pornography figures out that it should be telling less complicated stories or it's trying to tell less complicated stories. But in the 18th century, uh, women, you know, women's discussions of the sex that's being kind of imposed on them is a primary content of the pornography. Um, so, yeah, they're completely at the center of it.
1: And uh, so I get the sense that pornography, in a way, provided a liberating space for women um, mm-hmm. in the 18th century. Am I right?
0: Yeah, it's liberating. In a, in a, well, yeah, yes and no, right? liberating in a couple of ways, liberating in the sense that it gave a space for women's voices to articulate a position on sex. Um, to accept or refuse it, to articulate pleasure. Sometimes I don't want to. I don't want to make it sound like all of the pornography is violent and horrible to women, and that they always have a bad time. It's actually all over the map. Um, so it shows a plurality of women's experience, and in that degree, I don't, I don't think I would go so far to say that it's liberating. But I would say that it's trying to widen the sphere in which we think of women as sexual people and as people in general. So to that degree, it's participating in a potentially liberating project, I think. I don't think, I'm not optimistic enough to think that these texts achieved a kind of, you know, liberation for women. Um, it's unclear how many women read these texts. You know, we'll never know. Um, it's unclear if men took, or any readers took the discursive parts seriously, you know, and um, I'm not really interested in stuff like that. I'm just like interested in the fact that the, you know, the texts show these things happening at all. Um, But I think it would be taking the argument too far to say that, that, you know, that, that, that we sort of achieve, we achieve a liberating stance in these texts by showing women's experience. But to me, the more realistic and more important piece um, that is so important to a history of pornography, which we tend to think silences women it's like, no, that's a very partial history of the genre. And if you look at this particular case study I provide, um yeah, it's not so much liberating as it is insisting on an argument, you know, and a, and a discussion and an acknowledgement of the consequences of sex for women in a patriarchal patriarchal culture. So I just want to be clear, I don't think that um, and this isn't doesn't have to do with your question, but um it just seems relevant to say that women weren't saying no to sex flatly or in an empty way, like just because in these novels, I think they were saying no. So, and again, sometimes saying yes. They were highly aware of what would happen to their status and their reputation and their social standing if they did have sex. So to me, what's interesting isn't like, oh, women didn't want to, or it was a sexually repressed culture. It's like these women these women knew that their entire identity was predicated on their chastity and like that's how powerful that kind of patriarchalism is um and so it reveals that like sexual possibility is inhibited for women in a culture that says you're only worth something if you're chaste um and to me that's the when i say that pornography shows violence that's the violence i think it shows it's not like purely sexual violence it's like social violence um yeah
1: and and you you talk about several texts um, in in this book they, you talk about one of them the history of human heart the progress of nature the child of nature so I was wondering if you could discuss one of these texts a little bit introduce the text to us and tell us how they exemplify uh, pornography from a feminist perspective
0: yeah I'll do the I'll, I'll skip history of the human heart because I've talked about it a fair amount um and I think i've I've kind of given a, a sense of that answer and I'll try to be give two quick answers to the two others. Um, the Progress of Nature is a rollicking, short little kind of picaresque uh, pornographic novel. It was actually, the, the, there's one copy in the world, I think at the British Library, and it's bound in leather with the history of the human heart um, at the British Library. Like the owner smacked them together, put them in a binding and it, that's, I, I write about that in my book's preface. It's all very interesting. But um, that novel is both about teenage boys and teenage girls and kind of their sexual experiments in, you know, provincial England. Um, it's pretty comic. It's, it's very interesting. Um, and one scene there, uh, and one of the reasons I think it's so exemplary of my argument, is that I've mentioned it before. Two women find a dildo in their aunt's bedchamber, and there's this very, very long, account of what they do with it. And it's it's funny, but it's also again very serious at the same time. So the funny part is that they um they are like scared of it. They're not sure what it is. And then the older of them, the more experienced one figures it out and then starts explaining to the younger cousin, they're probably like in their mid-teens, um, how to use it and what it would be for. And then when they try to use it, it's very difficult because its proportions are very large, which then is a joke at the expense of the ants, right? Like there's all this kind of body, you know, phallic humor in it. So on the one hand, that scene gives instructions to women on how to use a dildo and shows two teenage girls like totally candid about it, like totally unembarrassed. But the other thing they talk about while they're talking about the dildo is that the more naive character, the younger one, her name is Polly. She's like, Oh, that's like a, that's like a penis. I get it. Okay. And then the older cousin, her name is Miss Forward. She says, um, no, it's not like a penis at all because penises rise and fall penises (laughs) like aren't always hard or powerful. And there's this long kind of philosophical excursus about, Um, how the dildo is like precisely not like the penis because the penis is not always strong. And it's been a fault of political history to believe that men are always strong, that men should be the political leaders, that men are kings, you know, with strong scepters. Um, she's like, yeah, that's just like a mistake because really the strong thing is the dildo and men's bodies don't correspond to that political identity that they've gained. And like it uses the language of political theory and government and and sort of like war to, to educate the reader um, about, the masculine body, having been mistakenly attributed with phallic power, when in fact the body is not always erect. Um, anyway, so like that, it, that's a, another very rich example of where a scene about penetration that could be used for sexual, you know, gratuitousness also contains this like insane <laughs> kind of like it contains a political analysis that could not exist without the, the dildo sitting there. You know, like it needs the sex. It needs the sexual content to articulate the feminist theory. Um, and then quickly, The Child of Nature, um, which came out in 1774, I count that that book was reprinted throughout the 19th century as pornography. Um, so I consider it pornography, too. But what's interesting is that it cont- the heroine in that novel manages to never have penetrative sex. She wards off violent and nonviolent advances on her, like for 400 pages. Um, And at the end, she ends up marrying a very wealthy man who dies the minute he marries her and she inherits all his money. And it's like, the joke is that this is the real um, thing you want in life is um, a huge estate and a lot of money and like never to have had sex at all. But as she's not having sex, she's constantly talking about feminist, what I think are feminist topics. She talks to many women throughout this novel and they say things like, um, they say things like, marriage is where sexual desire goes to die. (laughs) They say things like young women have to be soldiers, constantly fighting men off them. Like they have to be as vigilant as soldiers in wartime. Um, Men and women are constantly in a state of war. Um, She's nearly raped by her sister's fiance. Like basically the entire novel is a story of what, of how the world is impinging on women who don't want to be married um, yeah, and how they can lose their chance at a, at a lucrative marriage by any kind of small accident along the way. Um, and so by discussing the consequences of sex without discussing sex itself or describing sex itself, somehow that book was seen by later publishers as pornographic. And I think that's very instructive to us today, is to say that like, maybe there's a pornography without penetrative sex in it, you know, that's just kind of thinking about what sex does, like how it reverberates outward um, without actually being described itself. So there, that's a more theoretical argument, you know, around that novel. But um, but I'm not unique in, in seeing it that way.
1: And in general, uh, what sort of feminist vision they promoted? Was it a pro-sex one? I know it might be a very reductive question. <laughs>
0: no no it's, it's actually a really good question um so i think that the i would describe the feminism as um skeptical irreverent and unsanitized right like um i call it in my book a genital feminism like it's a feminism that arises from women speaking candidly about their bodies and what their bodies want and what they don't want onto their bodies um so it's very different from like the blue stocking circle who are the more commonly discussed feminists of the 18th century who were like discussing Shakespeare and the Bible, you know, and conduct um, and holding salons. I mean, I'm not being reductive. Their work is hugely important to a history of feminism. But this is a feminism that has to do with embodiments, um, with lowborn women who work in taverns, who are sex workers, um, who are mixed race women, um, or women of color working, you know, in ports and brothels. Like this is about common women. So it's a much more, I think, inclusive feminism than other kinds of feminism in the period. I don't, I think it's going too far to call it pro-sex. I think it's pro-sexual conversation, right? I think it's like pro-sexual transparency, but there is definitely not an argument that like, women want sex and should have access to it all the time it's much more that like they should be able to say yes and no to it and should live free of institutions that are trying to regulate it
1: and and when we move to the next century um 19th century when it when it comes to the victorian era how did they view pornography uh, especially when they reproduce or republish these novels did they try to censor these pornographic novels
0: Yeah, great question. So the Victorians um, in the era where pornography became a genre, they wrote their own pornography and then they reprinted like, I shouldn't say reprinted, they pirated shamelessly (laughs) tons of material from the 18th century. So there was a lot of like um, pornography written in that period and then tons that was reprinted and like passed off as new. Um, and the history of the human heart and the child of nature fall into that category. So those got reprinted. Um, their, the, the Victorian attitude toward those texts was di- sort of like disrespectful in the sense that they ne- they didn't attribute it to the previous century. They were messy. There are typos everywhere. Um, they modernize things. They try to make it, sort of 19th century-ish by replacing like if clothes are described the fashions will be updated to reflect 19th century tastes rather than 18th century um or if there's like religious language which is very common in the 18th century um the language of like heavenly transport or whatever to describe sex the victorians wanted nothing to do with that so they'll like change that language so they don't you know without saying so they just go in and kind of like make it sound the way they want to but the most significant change that i tracked Um, is that often, so those discursive parts of 18th century novels that I was talking about earlier where women lament sex or theorize about it or have feminist discoveries, you know, around sex, those passages are like minimized and, and, or Taken out entirely, um, like with a scalpel. When I was doing this research, I was like gasping in the British Library. It was like, oh my god! Like they took out, you know, this entire paragraph where a woman talks about potentially prosecuting her rapist. The Victorians take it out, so they are. When I say that the Victorians censor pornography, they're actually censoring the philosophical and feminist elements of it to simplify it or to try to simplify it into something that sort of gets from sex to sex act to sex act a lot quicker um and it also obviously i think kind of props up um a powerful masculinity because it's reducing the effect that women have on the narrative and reducing their voice in it it's it's just it's i couldn't believe it when i found it (laughs) like that that it was done with such um precision and um such an agenda
1: and uh h- how was their ambivalence towards heterosexuality and sex depicted in in Victorian times? And again, there are a number of good texts that I didn't know about that you introduced like Lostful Turk or Letters yeah. from Laura.
0: Yeah. So I think the vict- so the Victorians didn't want to be ambivalent about heterosexuality, I think. Um Uh, But I find them still to be ambivalent about it. So I think one answer is that they printed this 18th century stuff, you know, that was um, not like the child of nature that doesn't even describe sex. Um, It, You know, it's not pornography in like a way that we would see as straightforward now. So I think their ambivalence is reflected in the fact that they counted that as pornography um, and saw that the feminist voice in that had something to do with all of this other sexual material that they were collecting, um, and let me just say quickly that the the works I'm talking about, um, as I give you this answer, they were all collected in um, these kind of like these, these periodicals. One was called The Exquisite, another was called A Pearl, and these novels were serialized across multiple issues of this periodical and printed with like sexological lectures, body poetry, dirty jokes, um, neighborhood gossip, stuff like that. So it was literally woven in with this other material. So I think that shows a kind of ambivalence that they didn't just say, oh, that doesn't fit our definition, so we're not going to include it. Um, but in, in texts that were written in the 19th century, like the Lustful Turk and the Letters of Laura and Eveline, there's ambivalence toward heterosexuality. Um, I'll take the, the le- later one first. The Letters of Laura and Eveline, which is like, I think, 1881 or 1882, is by my reading a novel about trans eroticism um it's a novel about people who present as men but in large and significant parts of their life um where the clothing of women adopt women's name, you know use women's names um and in very explicit detailed um sexual descriptions like spectacular sex scenes they describe their bodies having like one sentence will say they have a penis and the next sentence will say that they have a clitoris or they'll describe their, again, apologies for the explicitness of my language. Um, uh, in one sentence we'll, we'll refer to their orifice as an arse and the next sentence will call it a cunt. So the way that, and, and pleasurably, like respectfully, like it's, you know, it's not um, a complaint. There's a way in which they construe gender identity, changing morphing across you know multiple genders within the erotic episode um so i'm not even sure that's ambivalent about heterosexuality i think that's like dispensing with heterosexuality altogether um i don't think there's any cis woman character in that novel um and those characters kind of um i don't mimic isn't the right word they Practice the institutions of heterosexuality, like the um the trans characters re- dress in very feminine clothing. They have, you know they they um bind their corsets really tightly. They they wear heels. They wear stockings and garters. Like they put on all the accoutrement of feminine dress, um and and the their male partners, their cis male partners, court them. As, as virginal women, even though they're not. So there's just this very, very experimental and um, you know non-heterosexual play going on in that novel by my reading. Um, the ambivalence in The Lustful Turk is a little more complicated because that very orientalist pornographic novel, right? It's set in Turkey. It is, uh, you know, I think we could safely call it anti-Muslim in the sense that it, you know, represents um, Muslim men as violent. Have they have harems, right? They want to sodomize women all the time. Like it's, it's by it's distasteful by any measure um, to our taste now. Um, So on the one hand, they are orientalizing and distancing from England, a very rapacious and violent straight male heterosexual desire um but at the same time there are scenes in that novel where um the men the the turkish men having sex with with european women they mimic the institutions of english heterosexuality like marriage um they you know they they one in one novel they set up a sham uh, marriage with like a, a supposedly a protestant priest so that this young woman th- thinks she's actually entering a christian marriage so that then she can be raped under the guise of this um of this sham so to me that shows the violent capacity of british marriage right like it, that's not just um and you know um an orientalized turkish character being cruel it's that but then it's also about a British institution that's meant to be domestic and safe and Victorian and clean is like available for this other kind of implementation. So I think that's pretty ambivalent as well.
1: And, and moving to 20th century, um, mm. these older programmatic novels, how, how, how did they change when I mean, they were reprinted in 1960s? And I'm really interested to know the relationship between these novels and then the women's movement um in 1960s as well
0: yeah absolutely um this was another amazing discovery <laughs> but in 1968 um you know yeah these i mean it would talk, I I ordered this book on Amazon like I ordered this book on Amazon for $5 I I order nothing from Amazon I promise except this one because I found it on a used um site there For five dollars because it looked like it bore some relationship to the history of the human heart and lo and behold it was a pulp 1968 pulp edition of the history of the human heart with a different title um so yes amazingly these 18th century books continued to be reprinted um and what happened to them is that these these you know i don't want to speak reductively but these um white male editors fashioned the books as revealing a body sexual culture, like a free sexual culture of the 18th century. And we need, you know, it's 1968, right? It's it's um, sexual radicalism, it's women's liberation, it's sexual liberation, it's student protests, right? It's all of that stuff going on. And these men, so Stephen Marcus, who wrote The Other Victorians, and Peter Fryer, who I believe is the editor of these pulp editions that I studied, um, they both were harnessing the spirit of the sexual revolution to say, you know, we need to discover the sexual content of the past, like we need to have access to these things. And so their editorial commentary made it sound as though they were bringing to the light of day, these books that had been lost and hidden away in libraries. In actual fact, when you read the editions that Peter Fryer, um, uh, you know, published as pulp novels he even further reduces the feminist content even more so than the victorians did so he goes in, he changes grammar to make women sound less smart and less interesting he um takes out speeches where like the man sounds like he's supplicating to the object of his desire, like he takes that stuff out so men sound more kind of powerful and sure of themselves. Um, yeah, and they and they take out further, like those footnotes that I was talking about where sometimes, you know, modesty is questioned, Those that type of discursive material was taken out as well. So like the history of this book across 250 years is one where strategically these editors went in and took out things that didn't align with the sexual history they wanted to see. So, um, so yeah, in the sixties, these, these scholar, male like scholar slash editors were claiming to restore a lost sexual past, but they were like chipping away and doing surgery at these books to make it look like the sexual past was one of, you know, rollicking boys kind of getting what they wanted as they caroused through the city. Um, it wasn't, so what they took out was exactly what was on the rise in the women's movement, right? They took out women who were speaking about the status of their bodies, who were claiming greater equity, who wanted sexual safety, you know, who wanted to determine their own futures. Like they, these, these men claimed to be in concert with the women's movement, but what they were doing to the texts tells a completely um, opposite story. It shows that they wanted to believe in a sexual past where men were in charge and women weren't saying much, which again, blew my mind, (laughs) you know, I, I, I wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't seen it. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's interesting to me that, um, you know, the women's movement, as we know, by the 1970s, second wave feminists were outraged about pornography, um, by the early 1980s, many of them were trying to make it illegal. They were trying to, um, to disallow it from having first amendment protection in the United States. Um, so, women end up, you know, reviling pornography. They think it's like the source text for why women are being, you know, oppressed and violently abused in society. Um, and I can't, you know, I sort of speculate um, it toward the end of my book. is part of this because the pornography that was being reprinted, circulated, um, and published was giving, was like erasing a history that could have given us greater possibility in what the genre could do, right? Like what if feminist feminist thinkers and feminist culture could have looked at a messier pornographic past and said like, oh, wait, there's a feminism in there (laughs) that like we can identify with and that we could pull into um, either creative work or feminist pornography or um, at least taking pornography more seriously as like saying many things rather than just saying one thing. Because what, of course, Second wave Feminists believed was that pornography especially in the era of film which by the 1970s that's the most popular form right is the golden era you know the era of deep throat and the opening of misty beethoven and um debbie does dallas and all of that um all those i think amazing films um that uh, rightly they were deeply concerned that women were being real women were being used in the making of that pornography so it's understandable why this was you know, making feminists deeply uncomfortable. Um, But that, too, is a very limited sense of what pornography is, right? When there was this bigger, richer history that kind of got
1: hidden from view. And did second wave feminism generally view this sort of pornography as misogynist?
0: they they did i mean i don't think they knew about 18th century pornography um you know to to be fair um but they made and you know this is where feminists i i am i'm i am a card carrying feminist right like i'm i'm not um i don't want to criticize the feminist thinkers too um abrasively but um they made very blanket statements about pornography over and over and over again that did no you know close reading of pornographic texts to be fair this is not what political activists wanted to do they didn't want to go sit in a library archive and like you know do a close reading of, of an obscure 18th century novel um but i think they perpetuated a belief about pornography that did that was very partial and focused only on certain aspects of pornographic you know production and texts so if you take a movie like Deep Throat. Which is, you know, the most famous, um, and acknowledging completely that Linda Lovelace said after that film was made that she was coerced and the conditions of production were violent, and that's horrific and horrible. Um, and at the same time, I, you know, as a as a literary historian, I'm still compelled to look at the whole narrative that that film offers. Um, and yes, it offers very graphic depictions of sex, um, oral sex in particular. But it also shows us that um, Linda Lovelace, her roommate is a woman and they both have jobs (laughs) and they pay their own rent and they live together and they have professional identities and they have sex with men with all kinds of different attitudes. Some of it is adoring. Most of it is like they're either working or they're a little bored. Like there's one there's one sex scene where um a woman is getting, you know, sort of cunnilingus done to her and she's like unpacking her groceries and smoking a cigarette at the same time. And it's like to me, I you know, I don't mean to be trite, but to me like a full feminist account would want to think about what does that tell us? Like what is that mood, what message is that telling us about women's experience of sex, um, why do we have to believe that that's violent? Um, it just seems to impose too uniform a reading on a really diverse set of representations. Um, but again, to be completely fair, I'm pretty sure I would have been a rabid anti-porn feminist in the 1970s as well, had I been of age, um, because I do think that what women were seeing um, what women were seeing sort of laughed at and enjoyed on screen, surely they were experiencing on some level in their lives actually happening to them. And I want to like honor that. And I, I can completely understand why they didn't want to treat pornography with subtlety. But I think we're in a different place now, right? And maybe we can be a little bit more, um, yeah, complicated with how we approach it.
1: And it's a very interesting topic because these two topics, feminism and pornography, they're usually polarized in general. But what similarities do you see between uh, second wave feminism and and, and pornography?
0: Yeah, well, that they're both obsessed with women's genitals. (laughs) Um, They both, you know, they both um it's sort of our job as literary critics right to see things that maybe aren't that aren't obvious but, that seem obvious to us so on the one hand I, so basically i think both feminism and pornography see women's genitals as sort of an origin of like social meaning and importance and pleasure and experimentation and autonomy so pornography sees women's genitals as like you know the ground zero of um you know pleasure mystery um availability you know, it's it's sort of the, the center of any pornographic film you watch, old or new, is like about getting there, right? And about um and you know, vaguely about the woman who's attached to them. But it's mostly almost it's almost anatomical in its attention to women's, you know, genitals. And second wave feminism in particular shared that focus on women's genitals because they believed that, um, and you know, this is an extreme position, but a writer like Susan Brown Miller believed that like the morphological possibility of rape is where patriarchy started like the fact that men's anatomy allowed them to rape women is how patriarchal culture was founded it's like what she actually believes and um so really second wave feminism in some ways is a social history that believes that women's genitals are also, right, at a, a sort of core origin point for a social experience or an understanding of how the world works. And so so to me, like, um, yeah, there, there's, there was a possibility there for feminists not to back away From the centrality women had in that visual culture of of, of pornography, but what if they had like seized the means of production, you know, or invented a pornography that did other things with women's bodies, Um, or at least been willing to kind of like approach, you know, to acknowledge that um, that pornography might be able to show them more than one thing um, about women's genitals. And again, I'm not saying I think those women actually should have done that then. I'm saying that now we can see there was this possibility for like an unembarrassed conversation about what was happening to women that actually could have, and I think now is in some feminist pornography, like unspooling. you know, in pornography, especially that's made by women and by queer women in particular. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's a little bit of that, like, speculative ending, you know, that we, that we give to books when we're like, what, what would that look like? That experimental vision in which the 1970s, there was a a team of, of feminist, um, feminists making pornography um, and showing what they wanted to show about the genital lives of women. But um, that's what I think they have in common. Um, and it, it's, it, to me, it is a real travesty of history that the anti-porn movement took over the energy of, of second wave feminism. I think really gave it a bad name and aligned it with the Christian right in the United States and um, really adopted a spirit of censorship that alienated so many other feminists. It's uh, it's it's one of the less attractive parts of that, of feminist history, I think.
1: Yeah, and I and I think I was looking back, uh, looking back on it, you can always get new perspectives, and that's something that uh, historians, people like you, are doing now. And, and this element right. of feminism, second wave feminism, and, and and pornography is what you see as bringing them close to one another. That focus on uh, women's genital experience. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. And a willingness to talk about it and not be afraid of it. Um, and to not assume that it's, you know, that it always has to be a site of violence. Um, and that, yeah, that's kind of a history that we, that we invented and reinforced when Mm -hmm. we could have, you know, approached sex as a much messier and a much um, more experimental sphere.
1: Mm uh before we end this conversation i'd like to know if there is any other project you are currently working on any other books you should expect sometime soon
0: what a great what a great question it is the middle of summer here in new york so i'm (laughs) trying to relax a little um but i am but i am hard at work um one project i'm working on is that i'm editing of one volume of a four volume set for routledge press um that's going to be a a source book for primary materials, the study, a source book for the study of pornography vis-a-vis primary materials of the 19th century. So some of the things I discussed, um, today will be collected in that volume and there are other volumes on science and, um, elite print culture and stuff like that. So I'm working with three other literary historians on that. I don't know when it will be out, certainly not before probably 2024, you know, it'll be at least a year. I've written a few recently, I've written a few more popular facing um, essays based on this work. Um, one is in Lapham's Quarterly and one is on um, the site Aeon. And those are on my linked on my website, which is KathleenLuby.com. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm also working on a project about the critique of marriage in the 18th century, you know that's a, a, a academic another academic book probably. And I'm um, toying around with the idea of trying to write kind of a trade version of this book, like a, like you know a book that you don't have to be a graduate student to probably really enjoy. Um, but something much shorter, much brisker um, that just asks these kinds of questions, like where we ended, like how can we think differently with the lessons of history kind of brought to the fore.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, totally. and I see, yeah, and I see great potential for this one to be published with also a commercial publisher like Penguin. You know, like, it's such a great book, and I think, and you know, 18th century literature is still 18th and 19th century literature is still very, very popular among people. They read those books, so uh, yeah. uh, looking at it from a different perspective and opening all these great ideas to uh, to the general audience would be fantastic.
0: That's that's my hope. Thank you so much for that boost of confidence. <laughs>
1: uh, Dr. Kathleen Luby, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us on New Books Network. I absolutely enjoyed this conversation.
0: Thank you so much. I had a great time.